the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We'd love to interact with you in a number number of different ways. <laughs> Yesterday I couldn't talk, and now it's on you. Yeah, I feel like it is contagious. I'm starting to really get worried. Maybe uh, maybe we need some time apart, Brian. Uh, it's coming. <laughs> I'm, I do not know what I'm going to say today, because I am on la- last show before a trip. So. Is that sort of like senioritis? Is there it is. <laughs> is it? So the other day, not even the other day when uh, I was, my wife and I were picking our kids up on their last day of school. It's always like fun because uh, the bell rings were waiting outside and, you know, all the kids are coming out. And these two younger kids, they couldn't have been more than first or second grade, go sprinting by us, just sprinting towards their parents, you know, yelling, school's out, school's <laughs> out. And I was like, oh, the joy of summer vacation. Yes. Oh, the joy. So. Yeah, I'm heading for, I'm actually going to a wedding in California this weekend. I've never stepped foot in the state of California in my life. That's crazy. As an East Coast guy. And so my wife and I actually have two different places to be. So it, she can't go with me. So I'm taking my oldest daughter. We're doing a little trip together. That's awesome. And uh, putting some time on either end of the trip to go to, we're going to spend a day in San Francisco nice. and some other stuff. So I couldn't be more excited, but I'm glad to be here for the day. And then I'm glad to hit the air. Gone. <laughs> Gone. Hit the air with Brian Fromm. All right, so here's some of the details before we dive in. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. You can tell Alexa, just subscribe to the Common Good Podcast. It still blows my mind when you I, said that yesterday. I don't have an Alexa, so I can't actually verify that this works, but people have said that it works. Mm-hmm. There's probably another podcast called The Common Good that you'll then accidentally subscribe to. Yep, don't do that. You'll say, wow, these guys sound way different leave in podcast bad, form. Leave them bad reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that helps us somehow. It makes me feel Oh better. my goodness gracious. Uh, hopefully you come back more happy yeah. after vacation. <laughs> you're, you're playing a little injured today. I Well, injured is definitely overselling it. I have like old man neck issues. <laughs> I don't know what it is. My chiropractic brother is going to be very upset that I've done very little about this, but it has something to do with carrying babies all the time. Nah, and... don't give me any excuse. I'm, I'm just, just wrong. Just old, old man neck issues. <laughs> Did, is it obvious issues. the way that I'm sitting? Uh, no, I just, just move. You've said it a few times and <laughs> you keep moving your neck and it just looks painful. Like yeah. let alone is painful. It just looks painful watching you do it. So. I'm in a lot of pain right now. Oh. So, so I'm giddy for leaving town. You're in pain with neck issues. This is going to be a show, man. <laughs> this is going to be the a show. juxtaposition. All right. So here's the uh, here's the headline of this story. Get rid of your crappy pastor. Done. Did, <laughs> did somebody from my congregation write this? <laughs> from Four Corners Community Church. Yeah. <laughs> Literally on the website. <laughs> so the uh, the author, David Hansen, uh, puts at the very top. This is one of the most read posts from my blog over the years. So he's kind of resharing it. 
And he says, I simply cannot count the number of complaints that I get to hear about other pastors. I've responded to such complaints many ways over the years, sometimes simply smile and nod without actually agreeing or conversely the serious head shake. I've advised the individuals to go and talk to their pastor about their complaint. I've even tried to convince the complainer that their pastor really is pretty good. But enough of that. I know what most of these complainers want. They want to get rid of their crappy pastor. The sooner the better. And so... (laughs) Without further ado, six steps to get rid of your crappy pastor and get a better pastor in your congregation. Why, why don't you start us off with number one? That's awesome. And this is from a website called digitalpastor.org. So he obviously deals with pastors. And uh, yeah, number one uh, is this. Uh, pray for your crappy pastor. I know you really don't want to pray for your pastor right now, but give it a try. Pray for your pastor's preaching, for your pastor's life, even for your pastor's family. Prayer was one of those things that Jesus was kind of big on. So go ahead and give it a try. So number one is pray. Let me read number two. You can go with this one. Number two, make sure your crappy pastor takes a day off. Okay. He says, really, you don't want your pastor doing all those things that annoy you any more than absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. Make sure everyone knows when the pastor's day off is and uh, don't call him that day. If there is a congregational event or an emergency or a wedding or a funeral on the normal day off, let it be known that your pastor will be taking another day off to make up for the time, you know, so that your crappy pastor is in the office less often to mess things up. Mm. Number three, insist that your crappy pastor takes every week of vacation in the contract. Did I tell you I'm going away next week? You did, <laughs> mention, you did mention it. You haven't stopped smiling since. Many pastors leave unclaimed vacation days on the table every year. Let's face it, you don't really want your pastor around anyway, so encourage him or her to take all of the allowed vacation and make it easy uh, for them to leave town, line up volunteers to take care of all the work around the congregation so the pastor doesn't have the extra work, to has to work extra hard before leaving and when coming home. Uh, make sure everyone comes to worship so the pastor doesn't feel guilty about leaving for a Sunday. <laughs> Number four, send your crappy pastor to continuing education events. Speaking of getting your crappy pastor out of town, uh, by contract, your pastor probably has continuing education time. Make sure that your pastor is attending lots of events with exciting speakers, great preachers, and innovative thinkers, you know, just so your pastor can see the ways in which he or she doesn't measure up. <laughs> While you're at it, go ahead and increase the continuing education budget. Make sure that there is no barrier to your pastor getting away from your congregation and to these events. People like people are are in tune enough to know that this is tongue in cheek, right? Oh, I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna tell until the end of the article. I'm just picturing people right now being all mad. Like what? <laughs> Number five, take over the tasks with which your pastor struggles. We all know that pastors should be good at everything, but from administration to preaching, from visitation with the elderly to youth events, chances are your crappy pastor has some places where there these are struggles. Hire an administrative assistant. Get the parents and other volunteers to coordinate and host youth events. Get a group of volunteers together to visit with homebound members. There are all sorts of ways to make sure uh, that your crappy pastor doesn't mess up these tasks that he or she is already struggling with. <laughs> and then number six of ways to get rid of your crappy pastor, encourage your pastor to spend more time in prayer and reading. Now that you have freed up your pastor from all those tasks that were the worst trouble points, there's all sorts of extra time. You don't want him or her to jump right back into those tasks and mess them up, do you? Encourage them to go and read or spend time with other local pastors or spend more time intentionally in prayer. There you go. It's foolproof. <laughs> if you do these six simple things, I guarantee you will get rid of your crappy pastor. Get your congregational leaders on board with this plan. Recruit the key people in the congregation to help you with it. That's awesome. It says take these six steps and watch your pastor become the sort of pastor you've always wanted. And so 
I love these, man. They're, we talk about a lot of these a lot, and sometimes they're on the church with too much um, expectation upon their pastor, but or just sometimes it's on the pastor, right? Like that one, like take time off, take your day off, take your vacation. Uh, sometimes uh, it that can be, uh, even if the church is like, you need to do this, it could be on the pastor to be like, no, I'm too important. I can't leave town. I can't do this. And um, these are, these are, uh, while this was written in a tongue-in-cheek and funny way, I think these are six great ways uh, for churches to encourage their pastors and things for pastors to take really seriously in their own lives. Well, the thing that I appreciate, I mean, it's obviously cheeky. Right. I hope it's obvious. Maybe may, maybe it's not, actually. But um, again, and the caveat is not, I don't think the community is responsible for making sure he or she is taking vacation days or going to conferences. Right. That's a part of the cheekiness. But the general arc of this whole article is, um, it it is the easiest thing to do to complain, and that's not to say that there aren't pastors worth complaining about. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying, hey, pray instead of complain. Sometimes some some people probably shouldn't be in yep. ministry, just in yep. general. But the heart posture of like, man, have I prayed for this person half as much as I as I've criticized yep. them? Uh, what would it look like to support and encourage them? And, and it feels a little self-serving because we're both pastors, but I'll tell you what, man, the seasons where people unsolicited uh, have prayed for us and encouraged us. Um, I honestly have been some of the most life-giving seasons. And uh, I don't know this, the, the particular angle of this story was intriguing to me. Absolutely. And uh, I hope that it's encouraged. I'd love to know what people would add. Like what's the thing that you do uh, or would do to encourage your, your pastor. If you're a pastor, what are the things that speak to you the most kind of when you're yeah. feeling like, you're uh, you're in a rut or you're kind of falling apart a little yeah. bit. Well, speaking of crappy pastors, uh, how's that for a segue? Greatest segue <laughs> you've ever done. Here's the headline. Knoxville detective sermon calling for LGBTQ executions far outside many Christian teachings. Expert so. says we have some audio for that and uh, it's going to get wild here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm, and i had mentioned just a couple of moments ago there's a uh well it's a video and i'm not going to play it all for you but a knoxville detective who is giving a sermon for some reason uh calling for the execution of members of the lgbtq community and uh if you have the bandwidth the time and the desire to get red hot angry uh, I encourage you to go watch the whole thing. Yep. Uh, fair warning. It is pretty disturbing. Um, pretty disturbing is an understatement, actually. It's infuriating. But I, I wanted you to actually hear uh, a little bit of the actual audio from Detective Grayson Fritz. And uh, then Brian and I are going to react to it. I don't want anybody in here to arms. Right. I'm not calling anyone here to violence. I'm saying it's the government's responsibility is what I said. Right. And for somebody to make that statement, they're either stupid or they didn't listen to the sermon. That's right. right. Listen to the sermon. Amen. You know? And we live in the United States, and we obey the laws of the United States. Amen. I'm just saying one of the laws of the United States should be to put homos to death. Right. Amen. Right. You can quote me on that. Right. Amen. So, we quoted him. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's I'm, that's probably not even the most inflammatory no. part of the sermon. Not even top three, to be honest. He he goes. I mean, he's talking about the quote execution of homos and like in a sermon. Like I don't know. I don't know how this struck you, Brian. Like you would you would comment it off air too. Like it seems like it's a teeny tiny church, which um, I guess is a good thing. But 
there's something about hearing that kind of language, watching someone stand at a legitimate pulpit. Like I'm looking at the cross in front of the pulpit. I think there's a cross there. And then hearing the stuff that he's saying, thinking these two postures could not be right. More incongruent. And I don't know, like how did, how did watching it or hearing it hit you just as a pastor, as a human, uh, a couple different things. Uh, first it's, it makes you just kind of sick. You're just like, Oh, like, yeah, this is just painful. Like it's painful for a pastor to get up and say anything like this. My, my second thought was like, uh, what makes this doubly troubling is that because there's a lot of like not not to excuse it, but there's a lot of like really small churches where people can get up. They're not you know what I mean? They get up and they talk. And uh, what also made me really just sad and like disgusted was the fact that this guy is a law enforcement. I mean, he's a detective like it, if you believe that and you're one of the people in charge of enforcing the law. <laughs> Yeah, like that is really problematic yes. and really troubling. And thankfully, he's been put on li- on administrative leave. And most people think he's going to lose his job if he hasn't already done so. Um, but that that's really problematic. And then third, I, I always go to, you know what? I, it puts a pit in my stomach in the sense of like this gets picked up in the media and it becomes kind of the painting of a broad with a broad brush painting with a broad brush of like. Oh, see, this is what we told you Christians believe. And you're just kind of like, oh, like, like, oh, Grace and Fritz, you know, you're like, <laughs> ah, Grace and Fritz. <laughs> you're just like, are you kidding me, man? I'm going to start using his name every time I stub oh, my toe. Oh, man. And like, like, this couldn't be the furthest thing from what any of us would preach and what any of us, you know, if, uh, as a great, like, uh, counter to this, I think of when, you know, talking to, uh, Rick Richardson about his book, right? And and Rick talked about uh, kind of the long game of, for Christians. The best way to share the gospel is is to immerse ourselves in people's lives and show the love of Christ. And he, he told some really awesome stories. And then you read this and you're just like, oh man, like, and I you know I've seen it on the news. This is getting a lot of pub and it just adds fuel to the fire who think uh, these types of things, like this is what Christians believe. This is what is being preached in those churches. I won't go to, right. This is why we need to stand up against, uh, Christianity and churches. And it just, it just makes me sad. You're just like, Oh man, like this, this crackpot, this crazy guy down in Tennessee, uh, is having likely that sort of effect on people. It's just really sad and hard. Well, that's why I wanted to talk about it because I'm, you know, and I'm honestly torn because part of me thinks I don't want to give this guy any more press. Right. Like I don't want to give it any credence at all. The other part of me though, exactly to your point to, to know that a lot of people outside of the church look at things like this because it's getting a lot of buzz. Say, See, that's why I don't want, that's why I don't want anything to do with Jesus or the yep. gospel. And I think it's incumbent upon us, I think to stand up against us and say, that's not us. That's not our, that's not team Jesus. That's not what we, I mean, he gave an hour long sermon about believing that all levels of government should arrest, try, convict, and quote, speedily execute members of the LGBTQ community on no more grounds than a cell phone photo of a person participating in a pride event. Wow. That is, that is so pit in my stomach, awful, and so gut-wrenchingly not the gospel and not Jesus. And it, it really, I know that you kind of touched on this. It makes me sick to my stomach to think that even one person stumbled across this video and really thought 
that's that's what Jesus is all about. Yep. That's yep. what the big C church is all about and felt all the more uh, justified to never set foot in a church yep. because see, this is, this is what I'm talking. And it, and if you're one of those people listening, like, please, please, please do not let this in any way represent for you right. what Jesus or the church or the gospel is actually about. And I realize I'm asking for the impossible because th- like, this is harmful. This is kind of why I'm going after Like, it's not just, Oh, his, he oh, and I harmful. disagree theologically. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's a nuanced thing. And we just land in different. No, this is, evil like it's yeah. just so other and it like ah, it just pains me so much and i just felt like i wanted to spend a little bit of time you know you and i kind of just publicly denouncing saying yeah. not anything even close to what he's saying here is at all true and then you know you, you it harkens back to the old westboro baptist thing uh where they're just doing crazy stuff and it always frustrated me that westboro baptist like you and i were talking off air is like a congregation of like 50 people But for some people, they are the epitome of a church like that is what church is. And therefore, this is why I will not give uh, church. And and, and then that's why it becomes and I understand why these kind of things get picked up in the media like they're inflammatory and they and they they get you clicks and this and that. And but that's why it's important for for gospel believing, Bible believing Christians to stand up and be like, no, this isn't the way of Jesus. This isn't. Uh, you know, if Jesus were here, he would not be calling for this like this guy is and that this is just evil, like it's evil. And it's like you said, it's not a misinterpretation of theology. And no, this is just hate filled evil. And the church needs to stand up and, and start having these conversations and being able to help people go. Yeah, no, no, this isn't us. This isn't what we stand for. And um you know, we can have disagreements about theological or sociological issues, but we can have agreement about what hate looks like right. and what dangerous speech looks like. And that's this wasn't a sermon. This was this was this was hate speech that will uh, that could cause real lives to be put in danger. Well, and what I find so difficult about this conversation is, you know, you look not that far back in history and you have a number of. Uh, communities and leaders that gave us a lot of great theology that also owned slaves. Mm. You know, where you read like the Puritans who I think got a lot of things right. And they're like, Oh yeah, they also owned people <laughs> like, and that's a very troubling thing to, to have to f- live in some tension of like, how could they get this part right and, and still be so wrong yep. and using the Bible to justify it. I mean, smart Bible people, yep. you know, I'm not, and I, and again, I'm not in any way calling this guy a smart Bible person either, but like we look back 50, a hundred, 150, 200 years. And, uh, we, we have seen some, some abuse in the name of gospel of Jesus of the Bible. Yeah. And, uh, I, unfortunately I don't think we've seen the last of this, What which is why I think it's always important for us to use whatever opportunities we have to stand against, yeah. to articulate against uh, evil and hatred and that kind of stuff to me. Um, I think it's important. I think it's important think for us it's to important. do that. Absolutely. It's why biblical interpretation matters. Knowing how to handle your Bible matters. And uh, no, I'm glad we talked about this because it's, it's uncomfortable. And just to listen to that guy's words, you're like, this guy's, like you said, he's a crackpot who doesn't really deserve to be mentioned, except for the fact that people who have trouble with the church are mentioning him right now. And oh. we need to have a, have a response to that. Yeah, totally agree. Well, coming up next, a, uh, an article by Carl Vaders it says, why I'm not pushing for church growth anymore. For years, I pushed for growth, and it nearly pushed me out of pastoral ministry. I think this is going to be a really, really important, timely discussion. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or 1160hope.com. And here's a, it's actually a conversation we've had a number of times, sort of unofficially, and this article kind of just goes for the jugular a little bit. It's <laughs> why I'm not pushing for church growth anymore. And the, sub, the subtitle is so clever. For years, I pushed for growth, and it nearly pushed me out of pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Well, and we've had this guy on the, on the show before, Carl Vader. This yeah. is one of his things that he writes about often uh, in many places, including uh, this one is at ChristianityToday.com. And uh, Vader says this. He says, I'm done pushing for it, done with making it the reason I wake up in the morning, done with obsessing over numerical increase or decrease, done with thinking that our church has to be bigger to be better. And he goes on to keep saying, what I appreciate about his article, he says, I still want the church I serve to grow. Uh, And he says, I keep learning about church growth. We all work really hard to make sure our church is prepared for growth. We're even experiencing some growth in his church. But then he makes the key change. He said, but preparing for it is not the same as pushing for it. Instead, Mm. I'm pushing for health. So he he is uh, holding church growth up versus church health. And he says, I'm pushing for church health, for renewal, for discipleship, for outreach, for worship, all of these characteristics that make for a strong, vital, God-honoring, community-changing, world-shaking church. Come on. Not because those elements will lead to church growth, but because those elements are what matter, full stop. That's good. They're not a means to an end. They don't lead to something. And so he goes on. He keeps going on about what do we celebrate as churches. And, man, I resonate with this as somebody who has started a church and uh, – I think this is true for all pastors, but I think especially when you start a church, uh, yeah. everybody asks you within the first two questions uh, when you meet them and they say, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. They might start by asking you where or what's the name of your church. But within the first two questions is going to be how big is your big church? Is your church yeah. How big is your church? And that can be a really encouraging question or a really deflating question, depending on how things are going. Let me at ask the you about time. that. Yeah. Yes. But what is it like uh, not just being asked that question, but observing their face when you respond? Oh, it's so funny. And again, like, uh, so we'll say this, right? Uh, how big is your church? And you'll go, oh, yeah, you know, probably, you know, 250, 300 on a Sunday morning, whatever else. And yeah. nobody knows exactly what you're counting or what this right. or that. But, <laughs> right. you know, 250 to 300. And depending on if that person comes from big church or not, sometimes they'll look at you like the dad who looks at his kids. Oh, that's nice. That's great. Huh. That's great. Other people will be like, that's awesome, man. That's great. Like, it's all a matter of perspective of right. what kind of church they're coming from. Um, but I, yeah, I love the, uh, the kind of like, Oh, that's awesome. That's great. Oh, <laughs> and, and you're just kind of like, uh, and so it, cause you can sense it, you see it, right? Like, okay, you don't, time. don't patronize me. Patronize, yeah. Right. That's the word I'm looking and for. And it totally feeds on itself because you know, all of us, I shouldn't tell us, I want my church to be bigger. Like there's something about it, but we also know that we're being judged by the size of our church. And so. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a guy. We count everything at our church. Like we count every Sunday morning, like numbers matter. But what I like what Carl Vader's is doing here is what is basically what he's saying is, what are you pushing for that is going to make you believe that your church is right. successful or you've made it or whatever. And he's saying we need to have bigger conversations about health. How do we uh, gauge and judge health more than numbers because you could grow churches in really unhealthy ways. Oh, for sure. Uh, and we've seen that a lot of big, have, big churches yeah. are really uh, terribly unhealthy as you peel away the layers. And so the question becomes how, regardless of the size of your church, 
uh, do you focus on health and yeah. allow the numbers to kind of be what they are? Well, and what he goes on to say is uh, health for renewal, discipleship, outreach, worship. He says these don't lead to something that matters. They are what matters. Mm-hmm. I thought that was actually really timely. And it's again, this is a great example of the kind of thing that is easy to like read and nod our heads at and say amen. But then you actually get into the trenches, like you were saying, of being asked these questions. It's kind of inevitable, right? That's not All going away. And and the inescapable temptation to read the person's response yeah. to whatever size church you just told them um, is a very odd pastoral Weird. thing that, like, I don't... There are very few people, I think, in the workforce that experience exactly that weirdness. Yep. And I'm curious, like, where you think... Where do you think the disconnect is? Because I, I honestly think a lot of pastors, most pastors would agree with this. Yeah, totally. Health. That is that is ultimately what, what we're about. Yep. And then they probably still continue to attempt to grow their church in unhealthy ways. Yep. Yep. Or in ways that are maybe less than honorable. Like what what mm. would change in your mind if, let's say the conversation that you uh, you teased out earlier, someone, rather than saying how big is your church, they said, hey, what, tell me about what your church is up to. Yeah. Or like, how healthy would you say your church is? Would yeah. that like catch you off guard? Would you be encouraged by that question? Like, how would you answer that? I think I'd be both. I'd be caught off guards and be, caught off guard and be like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> like, girl, oh, that's like, a new let's one? have okay. that conversation because it just never happens. It mm. just doesn't ever happen. And uh, but I'd be encouraged by it because you could start talking about things you see going on inside your church and not have to apologize for the fact that. Uh, you know, maybe we only grew by 3% last year, or maybe right. we didn't grow. The vast majority of churches in our area aren't growing. Right, exactly. And, um, you know, and not have to feel like a less of a pastor for doing that. Or some of the best pastors I know, I, and you could probably speak to this too. Some of the best pastors I know are pastors of small churches Oh, that totally. are, you've talked about this before, who are just grinding day in and day out, loving on their people. And they're not the ones you know, on the stages at conferences, they're not the ones getting book deals. They're not the ones uh, that everybody is looking up to and following on Twitter, but they are like making an eternal kingdom impact in their people day in and day out. And I'm always struck. You've told it a couple times, but man, I'm really struck by the story you've told before. And maybe you can tell it again. I mean, you went from an average size church that you were leading yeah. in, you know, Western suburbs context. Yeah. Um, you know, it was kind of similar to size church to the one I, I pastor, you know, 250, 300 people, whatever. Um, you went from an average size church to one of the bigger churches in town. Yeah. And the you've shared the story before that literally people changed how they treated you. Yeah. And I think that's the answer to the question as to why do a lot of us care about the size of our churches? Because mm. it changes how people treat you. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, the, to, to harken back to Scott Saul's preacher warning signs, right? One yeah. of them was... You'd rather you'd rather lead an unhealthy large church than a healthy small one, yep. uh, which kind of harkens to your ministry is growing, but your character is not. Yep. Like I think, and I'm not saying they're always part and parcel. They are not. I'm just saying we need to change some of the questions yes. because, like you said, um, I went I went from two very different sized churches in a very similar geographical area. Yeah. So to literally observe how different some people would treat me in certain contexts where I should have been flattered maybe or mm-hmm. honored it actually left a really bad taste in my mouth like oh oh now i'm worth talking with <laughs> like now i'm now i'm worth your time yep. and again that's that's very much in the minority so i'm not i, I don't mean to sure. in any way imply but yep. it, it did really that's that was about three years ago and that's actually begun probably about three years of this journey of me wrestling with 
how how can we be for church growth but not have that be our paramount goal? Yeah. How do we actually as leaders, as practitioners, as congregations, like better help encourage churches to to put health before just numerical growth? Yeah. And I think that's what you're saying and what, what he's proposing kind of rails a lot against our Western way of looking at church ministry yep. in the first place. Yep. So it's, it's actually a much more subversive article than it comes across as because we do tend to hyper glorify numerical growth above everything else. Yeah, we totally do. And, uh, and you know, it perpetuates itself in the pastor world because then we all go to the conferences and the the guy or the girl on the stage at the conference has a, you know, 5,000 person church and, they, they rattle off all the stats and all this kind of stuff. And you begin thinking, wow, I would love to be on a stage, but to get there, I got to grow a big church. Yeah, and and right, your, right. your reasoning for doing stuff, your motivation for doing stuff gets really skewed. And so this is a lot easier said than done, like focus on church health rather than numbers. And sometimes numbers are a great gauge of totally. church health. I think what we're totally. just trying to say is that's not always true. That's right. And we have to look deeper than the numbers. That's a great segue to talk about uh, a church that I think is doing some really healthy things. Here's the headline. My church came together to pay off each member's debt. We're going to talk about this church and their story coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. If you're listening via podcast, would you do us a favor? Just just oh, do us a favor. Nicely. <laughs> you ask nicely. Uh, I've never heard you aggressively ask this question. You don't even know what I'm going to say. Either way, if you are, it would really mean a lot to us if you like, subscribe, and review. Those things actually do somehow help us, and it helps the algorithm, helps more people see the show. And uh, show it to a friend. Take your phone right now, walk up to a stranger, and say, hey, I'm listening to these two yahoos, and it's not totally terrible. So uh, that, that would help us. Let's get this grassroots phone sharing campaign hey, check underway. Check out this podcast. It's, it's totally average. Just, hey, are you looking great. for a C minus way? <laughs> are you <laughs> killing time? Here it is. Do you got time just burning a hole in your pocket? Coming good. Killing time from four to six. <laughs> I like that. That's not the catchiest thing we've ever said, but all right. So I, uh, I teased this up earlier. The headline says my church came together to pay off each member's debt. This is on sojo.net. And uh, I think it is a fascinating story that I'd love for you to tell us more about. Yeah. And when you first read the headline, you're like, okay, so they took up a collection in order to pay off people's debt. And it's right. not actually what it is. Right. So let me tell you about this. Okay. Uh, the average U S household, the article begins carries a balance of almost $7,000 at the end of the month. And if you miss a payment, interest may jump from 15% to more than 20%. Credit cards are part of a predatory industry with a history of racial bias, it says. Many people can afford only the minimum monthly payment, uh, barely making a dent in the principal. Hmm. About 10 years ago at Circle of Hope, this author's church in Philadelphia, uh, he writes, we began experimenting with, quote, credit card debt annihilation. Our team's motto came from Romans 13, where the Apostle Paul urged believers to owe no one anything except love. And so we identified church members with credit card debt and an income. We established three cohorts with a half dozen participants. We want you to hear that. I want to read the whole thing just so you see the creativity. here. Yes, yes. We established three cohorts with a half dozen participants in each. Each member covenanted to 100% financial transparency within their cohort 
to meet monthly with the group and with their financial coach to stop using credit cards altogether. Wow. Each cohort started with seed money and a three-year payoff plan to bring the entire cohort out of credit card debt. We discerned an order of debt annihilation. Usually the card with the highest interest rate among all the cohort members was paid off first. Right. We paid off one line of credit at a time, working down the list. The biggest impact was made on the first day when the seed money paid off most problematic cards. And as we worked down the list, each participant made their own minimum payment. Uh, After someone's credit card debt was annihilated, they kept paying in the same order. The amount that formerly went to their own minimum got added to their third party check each month and the specific lender. And it goes on and on and on. Members of our cohorts had used their cards for temporary financial relief. When they needed money, they had turned to a lending corporation rather than to community. Oh, man. Their debt stories, how their debt grew, range from impulsive spending to medical debt to housing crisis. So the church is saying we are stepping in. And instead of you turning to a lender who's going to charge you great interest, we are going to help you. We're going to be the lender, but you're also going to be grow to become a lender to others in the community. It says we've completed three cohorts using this strategy, eliminating more than a hundred thousand dollars in principal debt. And we've probably saved as much in interest inspired by good stories of resistance in scripture. uh, We're trying to embody new possibilities, moving together from shame into trust and from bondage into mutuality. And man, so much to cover here. Uh, but so much, but but at the core of it, we want to say, man, this Circle of Hope Church in Philadelphia is is doing some work here. They're being the church. They're being a church family, helping people out of debt, and then helping people who come out of debt uh, kind of help them help others get out of debt. What man? What an encouraging story. So, and I actually interacted with them a little bit when uh, I was homeless in Philly. Stop, actually, really? it's, it's true. They they're the real deal. Uh, I don't know wow. if they're A plus rated or not, but they <laughs> like it is it, it is uh, inspiring because it was so long ago that I was there. Like I kind of forgot about it, but I saw the name. I was like, oh, I think I, I think I actually met some people there. They're 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 legitimate, and I think um, for me, like the most the most subversive part of this whole article is this one paragraph. It says, as a church, we are practicing putting limits on oppression from the dominant corporation culture, much in the way the Hebrews imagined and practiced during their their formation in the wilderness. The sabbatical year, the traditional Hebrew agricultural Sabbath year practiced every seven years, culminated in the vision of the Jubilee year. This mm. redistribution of land and release from debt bondage socialized the Hebrew people away from intergenerational poverty and wealth. Just as Sabbath teaches rest as resistance, setting a limit to oppressive working conditions of so freedom from credit card debt sets mutuality, trust, and simplicity as limits to economic oppression. Mm. I, and again, you don't you don't have to agree theologically or economically or even politically with everything they're doing. Right. But I have to say hats off to you for thinking creatively yep. about what the local expression of the church can look like. They're looking at their actual community and saying, all right, what's one of the things that's a boot on the neck of the people of our community? Mm-hmm. What can we do about that? And And the fact that this church isn't a huge church, and they're not. It's not some big endowment. Like they're thinking really strategically. Not one person paying off people's right. credit cards. Which, I mean, you know, props to the person that can do that too. Absolutely. I'm, I'm fine with that. But this like very uh, systemic, almost grassroots way of saying, how can we go after this together um, so that God's the hero, not some. You know what I mean? Like it, it's just a very communal way. I think of saying this is an issue. Let's get our brains together to figure out a way. 
to go after. I just think it's great. Yeah, and and we we'd be remiss not to say. Uh, those of you who are in deep credit card debt, you probably need to find some help because yeah, that totally. is crippling. It, yep. Everything they say in the story is true. Uh, the whole concept of lending and interest and compounding interest and stuff is made to the credit card companies are not giving out money out of altruism. Right. <laughs> they, not. They, they know that they're making money through it and understood the way credit cards work. And so. Uh, it is important for you, you know, to to kind of get a handle on that, and and hopefully you're a part of a church community that can help you get a handle on this thing. But man, I don't. I'm a pastor. I don't think much about things. Like if you were like, how could I best help my church? I'm not sure that at the top of that list would be like financial independence and tr- and freedom from credit cards. When we know that most of our people. This isn't an inner city thing. We know most of our people in the western suburbs are in terrible debt, right? Whether it be student loan debt or credit card debt or whatever else. And so, this is something we could be doing to help our people. But I'm truthfully, I don't. It's not the first thing that comes to my mind. If you're like, what could you be doing for your people? I'm not like, oh yeah, help them get out of debt. Yeah, that right. Sort of freedom. It's it's sort of like a it's like a it's like a silent, invisible oppression, right? Like it's it's much harder to identify. It actually, for, for me, I keep I keep seeing this phrase too: seed money. Uh, used in really creative, like effective ways. Like I, so, you know, I'm a part of Thriving Financial. I'm a Thriving member. And a part of being a Thriving member twice a year, you have access to what are called action teams. Okay. And uh, with an action team, you you like pitch this proposal and you get a, a $250 Visa card to use however you pitched. And so people will use it to like, you know, buy supplies to make brownies and then sell those brownies and, you know, make five wow. times as much for a local ministry or a local soup kitchen. People will... Um, you know, stand at Starbucks and like buy coffee for people as a way to like point them to a ministry event or some sort of, so literally every member twice a year gets $250 to like go use this as seed money and it almost always multiplies it tenfold to make an impact in their cities. And I think, why aren't more people doing that? Like why, what would it look like for churches to be more creative about, Hey, here's here's the issue we're facing, and we're yes. going to go after this in a way that maybe we've never actually gone after before. That's such a cool story. And I applaud I applaud churches that are doing that. All right, coming up next, we're going to dive into the very simple, easy topic of biblical inerrancy. Brian Fromm and I are going to duke it out, and we're probably going to get in a lot of trouble. So <laughs> that's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, as you literally just heard someone else say. But I just wanted to remind you (laughs) that it's us. It's still us. We are still here. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. Plus, the show is podcasted. If you like, review, subscribe, that stuff really, really does actually help us out. And I had uh, teased up just a little bit ago, we're going to talk about biblical inerrancy. But before we do that... My friend Brian Fromm has some things he wants to share with you. That's right. Wake up to wisdom from Chuck and coffee in your cup. Don't mind if I do. I really liked your video the other day. (laughs) I I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Uh, For a limited time, you can enter to win a Nespresso coffee machine and 10 of Chuck Swindoll's best-selling books. 
including the Swindoll Study Bible. Will there Ooh. ever be a Simkin Study Bible? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. It's, uh, an, a Simkin Study Bible would just be footnotes to me going, isn't this weird? Isn't this a weird story? Who's on the ark? <laughs> I, I, I can't answer this one, people. I, yeah, right. Thanks for buying my study Bible. Just anecdotal. Like, this reminds me of the MC Hammer song. Like, I go, can't touch this. I don't I don't know. Like, I have nothing. The footnote says, please see Swindoll study Bible. <laughs> please see, purchase, and buy me one. Oh, all right. I'm going to start over. Wake up to the wisdom from Chuck and coffee in your cup. For a limited time, you can enter to win an espresso coffee machine and 10 of Chuck Swindoll's best-selling books, including the Swindoll study Bible. If you want the chance to start your day with a latte and insight from Chuck Swindoll. Register now at 1160hope.com slash coffee. That is 1160hope.com slash coffee. Wow, that was really good, Brian. Thank you. Well done. (laughs) All right, so I don't know that we've ever officially quoted him on the show. He can be quite controversial. His name is Brian Zahn. He is a pastor and an author with a very unique kind of trajectory in history came from a number of different theological camps to land where he is now. Uh, But he's a good follow on Twitter, even if you don't totally agree with him. So I'm just going to read the tweet and then I'm going to make you respond to it first because you went to Wheaton. So uh, here we go. (laughs) A long time ago. (laughs) Says biblical inerrancy in quotes is an empty signifier. Why? Because an inerrant text still has to be interpreted. Then you run into the problem of pervasive interpretive pluralism, to borrow a phrase from Christian Smith. Plenty of people agree on inerrancy and disagree on everything else. Hmm. What do you think? Uh, I think he raises a really important point about interpretation. And you and I have talked a lot uh, about it a lot. You know, um, oftentimes uh, we will read the Bible and we will say, well, it clearly says this. Uh, so therefore, if you don't believe that it says exactly this, then you don't believe in inerrancy. You don't believe it's right. the word of God. You don't believe it's truthful. You're light on your your view of scripture. And we start throwing these things at it. Like in the Christian world, if I can make people believe that Ian Simpkins doesn't believe in the Bible, well, now I've really cut out any 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 standing that you have. That's right. right. That's right. Uh, and, and so we all go, well, not only is the text inerrant and, and in that we, you know, we're saying that like, you know, uh, it's truthful and it's um, uh, it's, it's without error in what it's teaching. Then I would say uh, we, we are not taking the step that says yes, but I'm not inerrant in my interpretation of it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so there is work to be done. And I've talked about this before that, uh, one of the most eye-opening experiences for me, you just mentioned that I went to Wheaton College. Uh, uh, one of the most eye-opening experiences for me was going into biblical interpretation classes. I was a Bible major and being taught that, you know, it matters about the liter- you know, the, uh, the genre of a text. Yes, right. And it matters about the historical context of a text. And these things that, that the Bible was written to people, not us. And that we have to understand these things that they are, you know, and so, uh, you know, to, to talk about interpretation doesn't mean that you don't believe the Bible is inerrant and truthful. It means, in fact, that you are holding it in higher esteem and going, you know what, I need to do the work here so that I can know what the Bible says. So I can understanding that my reading of it isn't always inerrant uh, and, and that we need to work through that. And so I love that he brings up interpretation. I think I'm not sure what that I know what pervasive interpreta- interpretive pluralism means. Thank you to Christian Smith for that phrase. <laughs> uh, but uh, I do think he's right when he says plenty of people agree on inerrancy and disagree on everything else. And just because somebody disagrees with your interpretation 
doesn't mean that they hold the Bible in less esteem. Doesn't mean that they don't believe that the Bible is truthful in the word of God and that, yeah, we got to have those conversations and we have to do the work of interpretation. Which I think the, the thing that to me is interesting about interpretation is it's happening whether we're doing the work or not. We're all, we are always interpreting, which I think is an important call that you just made. Like, Hey, let's do the, the good work of, uh, of good hermeneutic, good exegesis, mm-hmm. that stuff is, but we are interpreting regardless. I, I think mm-hmm. that's kind of part of his point because it does, it speaks a little bit to the general sentimentality that, and we've heard preachers say the Bible says that that settles it, um, yep. which on one hand in an increasingly relativistic culture can be admirable. Like, Hey, I, we can, in fact, there was a, an article that a, a friend of mine, uh, Trish Metz, if you're listening, thanks. This was uh, from <laughs> The headline says, Francis Chan, church must stop apologizing for what God says is right and wrong in a politically correct culture. And um, it's, a, it's a great article. And it talks about how, you know, we're veering away from this and away from that. And, and Christians, in a lot of ways, need to stand up. But the line that makes me most nervous in this article from the Christian Post says, there needs to be a way in which the church no longer apologizes for the way that God thinks and acts and what he says is right and wrong which maybe I'm showing too many of my cards. Mm-hmm. I always get a teensy bit skittish when we presume to know exactly how God quote thinks and acts. Mm-hmm. I think that's a little bit of a, of a dangerous game to assume that we've cornered the market on understanding exactly what that is. Now the rest of the story, I'm, I'm like cheering and I agree mm-hmm. with much of it. You know, when he talks about how we, we've become pretty wishy-washy and we've even touched on this, you know, by comparison to the church in the East, you know, we, we face uh, uh, a much more minimized version, I think, of persecution. Christians are literally losing their lives, you know. So that can create, I think, a weird kind of squishy middle. But what Brian Zahn, I think, is is saying is, at the very least, be mindful that we're always interpreting. Yes. And that to make some sort of theological statement um, without recognizing that we are still coming at these passages with our own lens, our own framework, our own experience, our own filters uh, is is pretty unhelpful at best and I think dangerous at worst to, to pretend that those those layers aren't there. Yeah. And I think the uh, to 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 embrace the the interpretive work to do the work of interpretation is is to raise the value of Scripture in your life. It's to say, I value the Bible so much and it is so foundational to my life. It is the word of God that I want to make sure I get it right. Not that the Bible gets it right. The Bible is right, but that I am getting it right and I'm wrestling and I'm doing this in community and not having this arrogant view that says, oh, you know, I read it and I automatically know exactly what it means and exactly what it says. Like, right. It takes some work and that's why it does. Uh, we need to be empowering ourselves and our people to be able to handle God's word correctly. And so when, when people are like, you know, trying to dig deeply into the Bible and trying to understand it, that's not a sign that they're doubting the Bible. That is a sign that they're, that they value the Bible uh, Mm. and and are doing the work. Not always, but for the most part, that's what I have found. And that's why we, you know, I love Wheaton college. That's why when you go to a place like Wheaton and they're, they're trying to give you the tools to really dissect the Bible. You know, I've read articles where people like Wheaton doesn't doesn't believe in the Bible anymore. Like, really? Like, no, that's where I Is learned. Is that a thing people are saying? I mean, way out there. But, okay. if you, if you, if, <laughs> but, but what my point is, when I went to Wheaton, that's when I learned how to handle God's word, like in a in a, in another in a in a deep way, and and grew a love for God's word even more than 
than I believe that comes with, well, I read it, that's that's it, that's what it says. And we don't even need to go through it, but think about the number of times where I read it and this is exactly what it says has gotten us in trouble as a church or as individuals, um, you know, uh, interpretation. When we start at the groundwork of the Bible is God's word and is good and is truthful, and I'm going to do the work to understand it, that's a good thing. But even think about, you know, earlier in the show, we're talking about Grace and Fritz, right? The detective in Tennessee. Grace and Fritz. Who, who, I mean, his premise was that homosexuals should be put to death. And he's he's quoting scripture left and right. And I, uh, I to me, like, I think that's that is also why um, good biblical hermeneutic done in the context of community mm-hmm. is so needed and so necessary because the Bible was not written in English. It was written for us, but not to us. So nope. we are. I mean, to imagine even what it, what a, uh, uh, an ancient Jewish brain would be thinking 3,000 years ago um, is borderline impossible. And I think we superimpose all sorts of filters and all sorts of worldviews without even knowing it. So all, all I'm really saying is, I think maybe he's saying this too, is it's certainly uh, admirable stand your ground to have conviction, but to also yes. be mindful and aware that we are always at all times interpreting. And I think that is always important for us to kind of keep it at the forefront. Absolutely. Coming up next, a story that doesn't apply to either of us. So this will be fun. Online dating boot camp. How dating stylists are helping frustrated singles find love. <laughs> That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. A show, if you've not heard, about taking a deep dive into difficult things, humorous things, stuff that it doesn't have easy answers, stuff that sometimes we'll disagree on, stuff that kind of exists in the gray space. And uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that kind of the premise of the whole show was for us to not only engage in dialogue, you know, to lean in rather than lean away, but to also... To hopefully give space, right? Like people just seem to be shouting back and forth at each other and we're caught in our echo chambers and our confirmation bias. What would it look like to have a dialogue? Which means there's a lot more happening than just the two hours on this show. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. Plus the show is podcasted. So if you like, subscribe, and review, that does actually somehow help us. In fact, if you would just go tell somebody or post something online, like helping spread the word so it's not just the two of us, that would also help a lot. So anything you can do would help us a great deal. And uh, every once in a while, we'll dive into stories that Brian and I just honestly have no business talking about. (laughs) (laughs) This this is one of those examples. I mentioned I got married at 22. You did. You did. But you're only 25. So that was (laughs) recent, right? Uh, Online dating boot camp. How dating stylists are helping frustrated singles find love. Yeah, I found this article on NBCNews.com. And when I first saw it, I was like, I feel like this article is going to make me angry. And then when I read it, I was like, oh, I kind of like this. Oh, I I like that journey. (laughs) So one thing I learned in here is that the dating industry is a three billion, that is a B, billion dollar empire. And that doesn't surprise me at all. Doesn't surprise me in the slightest. No idea about that. Estimated 40 million singles looking for love or at least dates online. Uh, Tinder reports that there are more than a billion swipes recorded on their app every single day. No, 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 no. Yes, no, every no. That can't single day. And what? so there is this whole industry out there. And uh, this article follows a guy by the name of Cornell Barrett, who is a dating coach and uh, started 
a a dating uh, online dating coaching uh, service for male clients for eight week stretches in what he refers to as a dating boot camp. He's the founder of something called Dating Transformation, and I love it. He says with a laugh, "I'm Yoda, and I consider my clients young Luke Skywalkers." Uh, <laughs> and so Barrett, it says, is one of a growing number of dating professionals who can help singles overhaul their online dating profiles. Taking and selecting new online profile photos, photos, penning new online dating profiles, even initiating online chats and texts with would-be dates. So he'll make your first impression with the dates in a bid to help their clients for, find more and better matches. And, huh. well, and where this article got me, I was in the middle, in the beginning, I was like, oh, come on. Like, it can't be that big a deal. But then you start talking, he starts talking about people who are like, in their 40s, in their 50s. He says he has clients as old as in their 70s, people who are like hmm. looking for, you know, whose spouses have died or in, who have gotten divorced or whatever. And it, that's the point where I was like, oh, okay, okay. There, there seems like a market here. And uh, it, it is just really interesting. He says singles can be uncertain what to say to would-be dates once an initial match has been found. Dating coach Amy Noble, founder of business Love Amy. And so she'll help them. She'll sit with them through those first times. Oh, boy. And so many things came up for me in this. And one is like, um, I'm going to sound like a, like a, uh, you know, a rom-com here, but it's people's, <laughs> people's desire to find love. It's people's desire to find a match. What are you, a rom-com? I know. And, uh, and, and just there, there's something sweet about this. The 46-year-old that they're, in, that they're uh, interviewing in here. Uh, but then there's also something else to to be said about uh, people's need to be coached. We talk about this with lots of different things. And so uh, now this niche coaching about dating and how do we help people? And so got to be honest, like I said, when I first started reading this, I thought I was going to roll my eyes through this article going, this is nuts. And then by the end, I was like, no, this is a thing. Three billion dollars, a billion people a day. Like, uh, no, this is a thing where, where coaching could be helpful. I mean, we probably spend $3 billion as a planet on all sorts of things that are not great. So I'm not, I'm not convinced just because of the usage amount or the dollar amount, but it makes me think of the movie Hitch. Remember the movie Hitch with, with Will Smith? Which, uh, Kevin James, right? I'm tr- right. And I'm trying to think through the trajectory of that story. It starts off really lighthearted. And what, what he does is gives people coaching. It's actually very similar to the story, isn't it? Yeah. He's helping people and he's, and he's got um, like Hitch has a, a high uh, integrity bar. So he's, he's drawing out people's like natural personalities, not like superimposing stuff. That's not true yep. for them, yep. but it does come back to bite both of them. Doesn't it? It does because they're, I think if I'm remembering the story correctly, part of the underbelly is, Oh, so you weren't actually being you back there. Like the person yeah. that I fell in love with yeah. or the person yeah. at the very least that I was interested in, you were being coached. And I'm wondering if there's some implications here to like part of what Amy is saying. Like, oh, I was uh, it's here to foster and encourage flirting again. But mm. isn't I don't know, like isn't well, yeah. flirting supposed to be kind of just who you actually are? And is it disingenuous to have coaching there or is it or is it really just kind of helping elevate the parts that you already possess but just giving you more confidence like is there is there a caution here brian from someone who has been married for almost 20 years yeah. <laughs> you know what i mean like is it do, should we even be weighing in at all because i think the dating game is actually way harder than we realize i think it's i think it's way more dire uh, i think people probably 
the level of panic or frustration yeah. or heartache is probably way more intense than either of us really realize. And uh, maybe we should bring John in for this conversation. I, <laughs> I feel like in general, like we're way over our skis here. And, and on one hand, I can think, yeah, the co- all right, this seems like a necessary coaching opportunity. On the other hand, I wonder if there's cautions or not. Yeah, there there probably are. Like, again, I'm I am way out over my skis on this one because uh, – Man, I'm we do a s- lot of skiing on I'm, the show. I'm going to sound really old here. Like, I didn't even date in, like, the whole online dating era. Like, it, it hadn't even existed yet. Right, right. And so, uh, I would think dating in this culture, in the online dating world, would be really intimidating. Especially at somebody, like, like uh, who not in your 20s. Like, mm. probably, I'm sure it's, you know, like, it's probably daunting in your 20s even, but it's... In this world where where so much is online, like how do you even meet people? Where do you meet people? Right. And so, uh, but I totally get. I remember Hitch that that one being almost like a um, uh, what's the Shakespeare one where where uh, he's talking and for the other guy and he says his poem Shakespeare and uh, Cyrano de Bergerac is it that one? Cyrano oh, de Bergerac? Yeah, it is. Yes, yes. And well done. So uh, it has that feel to it a little bit where you could become not you, and then somebody meets you later, going, "Wait a minute, that's not the person I thought I was meeting." So there is a danger in this, but there is something to be said about coaching and about um, getting help where you need help. And and again, it, it does seem uh, uh, this does seem somewhat lighthearted and almost funny until you're the person who just dreams of love and you're dreaming of finding that person. And like, right? How do I find that person? And and I'm sure it's daunting. And this type of thing is probably appealing to you. I I met someone at a wedding a couple of years ago, and he was talking about how much he hated his job, and he had read a book. I'm not going to get it right, but the book's title was something like "How to Interview for Any Job You Want and Get It." And oh. so he read this book, and it's kind of like a self help book, kind of a lot of what we're talking about. It's just sort of this coaching, how to lead with confidence, how to pretend like you know what you're talking about. And he'd always wanted to work in marketing, and so he read this book cover to cover. Um, applied for a marketing job that he had zero experience in. He didn't have a marketing degree at all. He was huh. not in any way qualified and got the job. So this guy's chatting with me by the buffet or whatever. And he's like, I make four times what I used to make. And now I have to figure out how to actually do marketing. Wow. Like he, he really, for him, he was like, I did not realize how much of it was about confidence, not necessarily about skill, so interesting. not necessarily about, you know, in this case, compatibility, uh, confidence seems to play a big part in that. And I'm wondering yeah. if, if, cause I think both matter, you know, both in business and also in relationships, compatibility is maybe a little bit of a myth because and we've talked about this, you know, in other segments that marriage and relationships are way more than just whether or not it's a quote fit. Yes. Um, you know, and I'll, what I'll often say to single people is what if you spent less time trying to find the one and more time becoming the one, like That's become really the good. kind of person that you would want to be with and realizing that, you know, Genesis doesn't say the halves will become whole, but the two shall become one. You're not less a person, uh, until this, you're not in junior varsity to the varsity of marriage, you know? And sometimes I think some of those perspectives can at at least maybe help lower the blood pressure a little bit, but I don't know. I, I don't know where I land on this whole story because I think it's probably more helpful than we realize. Yeah, I think so. I think like you said, uh, I especially am probably one of the last people who can speak on this because whenever so many people meet and you do so many weddings now where they met online and every time I hear it, I'm like, really? Yeah. Like, that happens? And they're like, uh, more than you know. Yeah, all and I'm the time. Like, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like so behind on this one because it still blows my mind every time. And they'll be like, 
Yeah, no, lots of lots of people are meeting online right now. I'm like, oh, okay, like that world is so foreign to me. So yeah. I read this and I'm like, okay, great, get same the, that 60 year old widower who wants to meet someone, give him some help, and, totally. and that's awesome. And you know, it's like a rom com, like I said. Well, I met my wife because she started attending the church I was well leading. Played, so. Well played. <laughs> I don't know that it's well played. That's a terrible way to end this segment. I shouldn't have even told people that. I love my church. So but I have to go find a new one because maybe there's a lady there for well, me. Well, that's that was part of the concern. Like, man, if I ask this girl out and she's not into me, this is going to be awkward for both of us. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of things that we have no business talking about, <laughs> coming up next, it's official. Kids are a million times worse when their moms are around. <laughs> I wonder what's going on there. That's coming that's up next funny. on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show about whatever we want it to be about. That is, that's this our music. new... Here it is. Is this it? This is good. Yeah, I'm assuming you chose this one. What, what about it to? makes it good, though? I'm curious why you like it. Like, like here we go, right? Like, the show's <laughs> almost over. Like, people are getting excited, but not about that. Not that the show's almost over, but for their night. And, like, this just, this is the music. It feels like you can't be sad with this music on. I wish you were a music reviewer. Can you... In your in your in your free time, you wish you were a music reviewer. This, <laughs> this music is... makes me happy. <laughs> Next album. <laughs> like, what's the emotion you get from this music we're listening to right now? Like, it gives me energy. Is that the point? Every music gives me the emotion of tired at this season of my life. Okay, today. like this one right now. Like, here we go. If I were a runner, which I'm not. If I were a guy who worked out, which I'm not. I should get back to this. This type of music would help me. It would spur me to run faster or lift more or. Do take a hill. You think so? I are you gonna? I mean, hearing that song now, are you gonna go to the gym after this? No, no I said if I worked out, if I was a runner, I so would do that. You can't speak to a mindset that you know nothing about. Though I'm That's... probably gonna go home, watch television for a while, and then pack for my trip tomorrow. And away we go. So. Will you? Uh, will you be watching someone else do something athletic? Yeah, like if I were if I were going home to watch a game and I listen to this music, this would get me more uh, hyped up to watch that game. I used to legitimately uh, create running playlists and like follow the BPM beats per minute uh, to keep in mind where in my run I would likely be getting fatigued and like ramp up the BPM that would motivate me to run faster or like wow. remember my I used to put that much thought into like a running playlist really yeah it was weird would all the songs have somewhat fast bpms or nope. would you put some really slow ones in they, i would never get really slow the um, celine dion portion of your playlist <laughs> was just like it's just me standing in the running trail with arms out titanic style <laughs> right just tear coming my down, heart will go on why is that runner crying and walking really slowly he's also only it's two celine. blocks from his house he's not made it that far well, speaking of none how, of that, how was your work? Your wife's like, "How was your workout? Really emotional." Yeah, cried, cried through the whole thing. She would not be surprised. Sarah McLaughlin is your like biking. Brian, I have to move on. Okay, are you? <laughs> I know that you're really getting a kick out of this. I know you are. Uh, uh, first, Facebook, Common Good Radio Show website, www.1160hope.com. Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, texting, texting. Tell us six eight six eight three, and then what? Uh, CG followed by your comment. What's CG for? Common good. But isn't the show the common good? But that doesn't need it in that. Just CG. It'll put it in the right spot. Here's what we got. Our people are really good. Our people. That's our, our, I we have our people. The church. Don't like, our common I don't good like people. this at all. Our no. co- okay. Our common good listeners <laughs> and podcasters. They are really good at interacting with us on Facebook. 
I was the one who championed the text line saying they are going to love this. They're going to be good. And they, they, people have not embraced the text line. <laughs> and like, I take it personal because you were it like, it feels like you're taking it you personal. You really drive the Facebook and people do interact there. And I was like the one, we've got to get a text line. People will react, blah, blah. And nope, I was wrong. Well, you, you're fir- you first championed the landline. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think that's going to catch on. We need a landline in this studio right now. Like, okay, then we definitely need a net zero account for sure. <laughs> I got my AOL discs. Uh, I got some free free dial-up. Okay, uh, we've, so true. we've burned a lot of time. But if you love me at all, you will text us because... Oh, yeah, the does that work line. on your wife? That no. approach? Has she texted the if, show? No, no, no. I mean, just in general, that approach. If you loved me at all, you'd fill in the blank. I told you how long I've been married, right? No, it doesn't work. Did it work 20 years ago? No. <laughs> if you love me, you'll marry me. <laughs> oh, please tell me you don't say anything like that ever to her. I don't. I only, beg, I only beg on the radio. You only beg on the radio? <laughs> I also don't believe that. I, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. All right, so here's something that I wonder if it's actually true. In fact, I'd love to hear from some moms, actually, because the headline I just thought was funny. It's official. Kids are a million times worse when their moms are around. Starts by saying, when my first daughter started preschool, I held my breath the whole first week expecting to be called for an early pickup. Surely she would throw one of her outrageous temper tantrums or epic meltdowns or worse, have some sort of irrevocable, irrevocable, irrevocable. I knew I wasn't going to get through it. Uh, Pooping incident. This was my child for whom I perfected the Heisman Trophy hold and carry. This is my (laughs) feel all the feelings and loudly child. She had a knack for going absolutely bananas at the drop of a hat. And I mean that literally. <laughs> uh, one time she dropped her hat in Target and the world ended. But all my worry was for nothing at school and really anywhere else in the vast universe I was not. She was an absolute angel. Her teachers gushed about her behavior, including her great listening and impressive ability to share and sit quietly. My kid? Huh, scratch his head. Turns out <laughs> she wasn't a bad kid. She was just bad. For me. Yeah. So she goes on to talk about apparently this is a a thing that a lot of moms and maybe parents in general have experienced where uh, with them, their kid behaves one way. And when they're out in public, they're they're completely different. And my mind are still too young for me to really fully understand this. But I'd love to know how have you experienced this at all? Exactly the same place. No kidding. When you go to that parent teacher conference (laughs) and they're like and I feel like my kids are generally well behaved kids. But, you know, every kid when they're at home, they're like. You know, they fight with their sibling or they give you attitude or this or that. And so you go into that parent teacher conference and the teacher, you know, I'll brag on my kids here. Like every parent teacher conference we've gone to uh, for all three kids, the teachers have just been glowing. They are like they are the most well-behaved like we want, like they start talking about our parenting and all this stuff. And my wife and I always leave their parent teacher conferences so proud of our children. But there is a moment where we go. Is that our child they were talking about? <laughs> right. Like, Did they get man, the files mixed up? This is coming for you at some point. Parent-teacher conference or something like that. And, and this article does a really good job about kind of unpacking that. And, and yeah, you don't want your kid to be able to just take advantage of you and throw uh, throw um, tantrums at all times. Or this and that. But, but this article does begin to say, listen, your kid on some level does that because they feel safe around you. Mm. And they feel the ability to to show their emotions around you. So, yet you can't let your kid run all over you and just throw tantrums and target and do this and that. You've got to discipline your children and this and that. But but I do like the take that just basically is trying to encourage a parent. This is more of a mom blog. So 
that in this it's moms, but it's also dads. Like we've all been there yeah. uh, that says you're doing a great job. You've made your child feel safe. Your child knows you love them. And when they are releasing, it says their barrel bowels upon you and wine crying and shriek screaming and attempting to slap your face. Remember that love is an epic achievement. <laughs> so that's said a little tongue in cheek. Like you've got to still have some discipline here, but there is something to be said about uh, you know, when your kid is behaving well at school or at church or something, that says something about your parenting. And when they're just letting loose at home, it also says something about how they feel about yeah. you. And, and the encouragement here, I, I appreciate. Okay, so here's the thing that I love about this article is that uh, in the midst of all of that kind of tongue in cheek, they quote a, a child psychologist named Dr. Heather Wittenberg. And here's what here's what she says. It says, children save their best and worst for us yeah. as parents. Uh, they're their true selves with us. It takes energy to be good and follow the rules, especially for young children. So when they get home, they let it all hang out. The good news is that their deepest love, affection, admiration, and goofiness are reserved for us too. So the next time your sweet angel throws down in the middle of the grocery store, or poops on the floor, or <laughs> winds it away through the whole day and weeks, keep your chin up. Which, again, I realize this is probably coming for me, but for those with young kids who are feeling like, man, I can't go on another day, know that you're not alone, and that, and that most certainly both ends of the spectrum are true, that while the days may feel really, really long, yeah. they're also reserving like their deepest sense of emotion and fun for you as well. It's absolutely true, and like you said, just enjoy each moment you're in, right? That we often say, we've said it before here, the days are long, but the years are short. And, uh, you know, it, if your kid feels safe enough to be their true self around you, obviously then you've got the wonderful task of helping mold them and craft them and, uh, you know, what's appropriate, what's not. But just because your kid throws tantrums around you and not at school, that's not a bad thing about your parenting. That's probably actually a good thing. They trust you. They love you. And, uh, and, and, you know, they're, they're looking for you for, for guidance. And, uh, so, you know, we want to throw a little encouragement out there for the parents because it can be discouraging. I could see if you go to parent teacher conference and they're like, your kid's an angel. And you're like, man, at home, my kid's just the devil. <laughs> and how do I reconcile those two things? Yeah. And, and that can be reconciled. Yeah. I, I, at the very least, I hope that it is encouraging because I know that even like my wife is my hero right now, <laughs> because even, even with the two little ones, they can be really tough. And a lot of times we'll go out. And the babysitter will be like, they both were perfect. And I and I don't even think that this is applying to, you know, ours are so young. But even that can be frustrating. Like, why are they perfect for you yeah. and not for me? And for the people that are kind of in it day in and day out that are feeling discouraged, uh, you're not alone. Keep your chin up. It is all worth it in the end. And the fact that they're being good at school and for the babysitter is a reflection upon your parenting. It yep. is a reflection upon how you're raising them. Yep, totally agree. Coming up next, we're going to end the show the way we always do with some interweb insanity stories that we have not read, sound effects that we have not heard, and we'll laugh and cry right alongside you here on The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. If you've ever heard that weird bumper before, you know that the show is not only ending... It's going to go out with a bang because there are stories <laughs> that we have not seen. Our executive producer, Keith Conrad, has uh, slyly selected them, delivered them to us with a smirk on his face and it's a always, twinkle in his eye. The size of the smirk is always makes me nervous. Like, that's with the that new smirk, That's though. the new name of the show, Size of the Smirk. 
<laughs> Which, if you say it fast enough, just sounds like Smurf nonsense. It doesn't even make any sense. Either way, the stories we've not seen, they're true stories, and there's uh, accompanying sound effects that we have not heard. So when we laugh, it's real. When we cry, it's also real and, and terrifying. usually from The Simpsons or Snakes on a Plane. We got a lot of Snakes on a Plane edited. <laughs> edited, edited. Yes. One of these days, an unedited is going to slip in, and we're all going to lose our jobs. Exactly. That's going to be... They will get called in, and they'll be like, I don't care if Keith Conrad did it. That's your yeah, name on the show. Yeah, right. Everyone's going down. Yep. All right, why don't you kick us off? All righty. Italy. Ants infest flight from Italy to Newark. Passengers complain of bugs crawling all over them. That sounds about right. Listen to the first line of this. Forget snakes on a plane. <laughs> Man, we've done this for too long. On Monday, it was ants on a plane. Lots of them, apparently. A passenger on a United Airlines flight from Venice to Newark tweeted that she and the other travelers saw and felt, oh, this is terrible, Ugh. large numbers of ants crawling on them, their seats, the windows, and even in the luggage compartments. This is my new normal. I live here now. Me and the ants, Bur- uh, Charlotte Burns, tweeted in an extensive thread on her experience. Another passenger and a member of the flight crew said the ants were spotted in first class. Well, we can't have that. But <laughs> The airline acknowledged the incident and said it was responding. What kind of plane is it? Oh, it's a big, pretty white plane with red stripes and curtains in the window and wheels. And it looks like a big Tylenol. We've had that one a few times. Yeah, airplane, yeah, yes. yeah, for sure. Yes. All right, Kansas. Topeka police apologize for Father's Day tweet. Oh, I wonder where I this wonder is going. Topeka police is apologizing for a Father's Day tweet that encouraged people to turn in fathers who have outstanding warrants. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, boy. Oh, it's a picture of Brian from. Nope. Oh, weird. A screenshot of the tweet sent Sunday shows it says, in part, want to give him a Father's Day he'll never forget? Call TPD and we'll help your family make a memory that will last That's a lifetime. Awesome. The tweet apparently was deleted shortly after. After it was posted in a statement Monday, the department said the tweet was sent by someone on its social media team and was meant to be lighthearted. Instead, the statement said it upset some people. Papa, can you hear me? <laughs> Papa, can you see me? Oh, no. oh, this is that's a, a really that's weird a top segment. five one right there. Jeez, that is good. All right, England Domino's delivery driver tries to deliver pizza to the Queen after prank call. <laughs> The state banquet <laughs> adhered to all the pomp and ceremony you'd expect. So afterwards, was the queen craving a simpler meal of far, four large cheeseburger pizzas? Ugh. Someone working at Domino's clearly thought so after they fulfilled a 46, what is that? It's not dollar, Frank? Pound. Pound. Pound? Pound. Order to deliver to Elizabeth at Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Bless them. They obviously didn't realize it was a prank call on June 6th. The pizzas were duly delivered to the central London address where security told them there had been a mistake and there was no call for pizza. (laughs) A source told the son the driver was stopped by two armed police officers. One of them radioed through to the control room to check if the queen had actually ordered a pizza. The next thing the copper copper said was, sorry, sir, Elizabeth is the name of the queen and she lives at Buckingham Palace. I think that someone is winding you, winding you, pranking you. I think I think winding you up. Uh, Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Domino's told the paper they tracked the order to a store in London, Victoria, where payment had been promised upon delivery. For no matter how silly the idea of having a queen might be to us, (laughs) as Americans, we must be gracious and considerate hosts. Oh, Keith is killing it today. Yeah, he really is. I'm going to start saying winding you up, though. I Uh, feel like that's one of the things the Brits get right. All right, Texas, a man caught on camera stealing a package while carrying 
a duck. <laughs> Sorry. That, was that one got you, huh? Yes, that was, <laughs> was a loud it, laugh. Was it the delivery? It was funny. We Just... see it all too often nowadays. Dishonest people stealing packages right off of people's front porch. But something you may not have ever seen before is a so-called porch pirate that has an accomplice. Investigators released doorbell video this week of a man stealing a package off the front porch of a home in the 500 block of Cypress Court. Police describe the man as a white male with short, dark colored hair wearing a red shirt and blue jeans. But it's the man's accomplice that may give away his true identity. He walks up to the porch to grab the package with a quacking duck in his arms. And this duck is not quiet about it either. It seems to be nonstop quacking during the entire theft. You're despicable. Yeah, that sounds about right. Last one, Maine. Moose crashes through pizza shop's window in Maine. Huh? Police in the town of Dover, Foxcroft, Maine, say a moose crashed through the window of a now-closed pizzeria at 1.30 a.m. Uh, an officer with the Piscatokies County Sheriff's <laughs> Office managed to snap a picture of the likely hangry moose exiting back out through the broken window. We found the suspect, and they are not in custody. Boring, right? They joked on Facebook. I've been at this job for 26 years, and I grew up here, and this is the first time I've seen it. Commenters who responded to the police uh, department's Facebook post, meanwhile, couldn't help but crack a few jokes. It's a moose steak. He was just the first oh, responder. <laughs> this is a moosing, another added. He moose have been hungry. Uh, the moose is still at large. And now... Hey, Rocky! Watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. <laughs> you really nailed the inflection of that whole I last felt, bit there. I felt like I needed to. That really, was really, really proud of you, man. Well, I hope you have a great time Thanks, in California. Thanks, we bud. will miss you here. Uh, but I hope you'll join us still, even though Brian Tron will, will not be a too. part of it. Yeah, please return is what if I'm asking. If we learned anything last time I was gone, you had awesome co-hosts. So keep <laughs> listening. Fingers crossed. Thanks, man. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.